Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. The last time that my cousin, Marissa Barnes, was here, she was a captain in the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. Well, she is now a major in the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. Congratulations, Marissa. And she and I had a conversation about authority, about how she makes decisions on the ground in the heat of the moment, about law enforcement, and also about why she enjoys training her fellow officers. So here I am with my cousin, Marissa. She's awesome. Woohoo! You will love her. I love her. Uh, so you are welcome. <laughs> also, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast. Here I am with Major Marissa Barnes of the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. Welcome to the podcast, Major Marissa Barnes of the Kansas City Police Department. Thank you for being here, cousin. Thank you for having me. Everybody, she's my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> It's not just a family reunion. I'm so grateful for your time. And I'm going to jump right into it, Marissa, because I'm going to talk about something that we often talk about privately, uh, just between the two of us. But it's sort of about um, authority. And I think that we're in a moment where people of all stripes distrust authority. If you're on one side of the aisle, uh, you distrust the FBI. If you're on the other side of the aisle, uh, you might have more distrust of local law enforcement, um, of which you are a member. How do we get to a place where people can have a better sense of faith in the institutions? Because we rely on those institutions. It will be the Wild West if we don't have those institutions, uh, yet and still faith in them is breaking down. Uh, what's your advice? And this is the advice for the public, not the stuff we talk about right. on the sofa over cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> so it's about relationship building. You know, we're people. So whether you're law enforcement or just a regular citizen, the breakdown in communication has been crazy. And so we have to literally build trust, get to know each other again. And even if we agree to disagree, at least we can understand each other. So I think just a lot of communication, you have to have people that are willing to actually do that, come to the table and listen to your side. And then we as law enforcement have to listen to their side, be sympathetic, empathetic. And I think that's how you build relationships. And once that starts, you build the trust slowly um, and just go from there. I know that this is important to you, that relationship building, trust building. Can you give us an example of how you've made that happen in real life and practice? I do a variety of events with the community. I was recently made the commander of Metro Patrol Division where I started as an officer. So we try to do uh, community meetings. Um, we've started doing kind of not your regular crime meeting, but a community meeting where we have stakeholders from the community come in and kind of we talk outside the box. Kansas City right now has a, a violent crime issue. It's bad. So without the police and the community working together, we won't solve anything. So we're doing things like that. I participate in a camp called Camp Fury where we take young ladies and we put them up for a week at a Girl Scout campsite, and then they spend a week learning about police, fire, and EMS. 
giving them a glance into the life of a first responder. Um, it really gives them some understanding of uh, kind of the day-to-day -day things we deal with. And so it's always nice to see that light go on or the understanding uh, when, they, when we've taught them something or showed them something and they figure out, oh, that's why they do that. Same with the women's self-defense class that uh, I participate in. Uh, once a month, it's free for the community. You don't have to be uh, a citizen of Kansas City or a resident of Kansas City. Uh, you just come and they spend about an hour and a half, two hours with some awareness training, PowerPoint discussion. And then the last couple of hours are on the mats uh, with me and my colleagues. That gives us a chance to dialogue with the community. We make them feel comfortable. They ask us questions. Um, we have people contact us afterwards when they see something in the community or see something on TV and they want to know from a police perspective, okay, why did this happen? So, I mean, again, it's relationship building. They get to know me as a person and figure out that, hey, we can have a conversation. So just, I mean, there's, there's a lot of other things, but those are just some of the more notable ones. You mentioned the spike in crime. What do you attribute that to? And how do you manage it while at the same time recognizing that, you know, these crimes, these things are taking place in a community in which you're trying to build relationships and create relationships and rapport with people. Yet and still, you know, there are times when you really have to push back on certain types of violence and, and offensive behavior. How do you strike that balance? I mean, just for you. Very carefully. Right now, I really think the types of violent scenes we're responding to, people have a lack of communication skills, a lack of controlling their emotions, no problem-solving skills. So the latest tragedy in our, in our community, in my division, we had three people shot and killed and six more wounded over a guy hugging another guy's girlfriend. I mean, it's literally about problem-solving skills, communicating uh, and being able to control your emotions enough to just walk away. What happened in that situation? So basically they were at an after hours club. So this happened about three or four o'clock in the morning. Guy and his girlfriend, they walk up. She sees another guy and his girlfriend. She goes up to give them a hug. She hugs the girl. She hugs the guy. The boyfriend of the lady that was giving the hugs. Apparently he didn't like the way the guy hugged his girlfriend and said something to the effect of, watch your hands or something. And it sounds like the girlfriend actually was trying to de-escalate the situation by just grabbing the boyfriend and walking away, but that's when the shot started. Were there any officers involved in the shooting? No. Basically, we got there. We cleaned up the aftermath. I mean, that that's what's so tragic. Um, what a tragedy. It is. And we have to make sure the first responding officer that saw all the chaos and all the carnage we have to make sure that they're okay. But yeah, I don't know how you stop that type of thing. I don't know that a police officer being there would have stopped that. We have another situation where officers actually caught a homicide on scene because guys got out right in front of them and started shooting into a vehicle. So we have the whole thing on tape. One of the things we're doing here in Kansas City, we have a new chief. She was sworn in earlier this year, um, our first female chief. You know, She brings a different dynamic and problem-solving approach. Um, so she is working with a lot of our community leaders. I think they call them violence interrupters. So people that can go into the crowd um, at a scene of a homicide like that or any violent crime and just talk to people. And th they're kind of that bridge between the community and the police department 
because without the community, we can't solve crimes. If we're not there to witness it, we need to hear from somebody who was, and it can be frightening trying to step up. But with our community leaders that are engaging with us and, and responding to scenes and, and helping us gain information, I really think it helps. It helps the families at the scene to see that police are there and they want to solve the crime and to see how the community leaders are working to get the information that we need. It doesn't always work, but I really feel like it's a different uh, approach to something that we've been dealing with for a long time. Give people some sense, you know, I'm doing this series now on the podcast about how people make decisions and how, you know, the factors that influence them when they're making hard choices. Marissa is now Major Marissa Barnes. When she was on the podcast the last time, she was Captain Marissa Barnes. Uh, so congratulations Thank once you. again. But um, give people some sense of what it's like being on the ground in the middle of a violent situation and the sorts of things that you've got to take into account in a fleeting moment when you are deciding how and when to intervene. So for instance, I'm just thinking about the situation where you said two law enforcement officers actually saw the homicide go down because people were just shooting in the car mm -hmm. while the police officers were there. Walk us through your decisioning as you come upon a, a violent scene. So first of all, uh, you have to make sure the scene is safe for you to even go into. Um, at that point, the officers were in a fairly safe spot in their vehicles. I can't even imagine their thought process going, do I go after the bad guys or do I go help the victim? In this case, they went to help the victim and uh, the suspects were able to get away because they did not pursue. That's very challenging. Some other things they have to think about, you know, you come up on an active shooter, you can't just draw our guns and begin firing aimlessly. You have to consider the victims that are already there. You have to consider the surrounding victims. So shoot, don't shoot scenarios where you do, you have to make a decision in milliseconds. Those officers, I think, did a really good job. They were gonna be good witnesses for this victim. Unfortunately, the victim did not survive, but they did what they could. They got to the victim, uh, provided medical aid until the ambulance got there. Unfortunately, the suspects were able to get away in that. I know you, so <laughs> I am talking to a law enforcement officer of good intentions, of noble intentions, who believes in justice, who believes in law and order, and believes that it's something that should be enforced without regard to the package that one is in. That is not every law enforcement officer. I mean, we all have seen some of the more egregious examples. People have talked about them. I won't, you know, you're in uniform and I'm, I'm not going to put you in a situation of critiquing another department uh, in this platform, in this space. When you see something that you find troubling. You know, you're also the mother of uh, a young man who's very uh, dear to me. When you see something and when you see law enforcement engage with civilians in a way that's troubling, overly aggressive, how do you process that? Because you've got to go back out on the street. And then, you know, a lot of people who were mad at officer so-and-so in that other jurisdiction, you know, and they've seen that tape or this tape or that tape. When you see some of the more disturbing examples, how do you process that? Initially, I process it like any other human being. Uh, it makes me angry, sick to my stomach. It just disgusts me because I know that they are making our mission harder than it already is. When people see that, um, they react emotionally. And so 
I know they probably don't mean it, but like, we're not all the same. Just like if you have, um, I don't know, a preacher who is inappropriate with, you know, children or something like that. It doesn't mean all the preachers are like that. Um, so I think it's that trying to get people to, yes, be upset at that situation, what happened, but don't take it out on all of law enforcement. I think a, a perfect example is when the protests were occurring. That was some of the hardest uh, hardest times that, um, of my career on this department to know that my community was hurting and to understand why they were hurting, but then to know that I still had a job to do. It was hard. I actually questioned why I was doing what I was doing. Why do I stay in police work? They don't care about I'm here to make a difference. They're just mad at us all. But um, I have um, some very good friends in the department and some that are outside the department. And those discussions led to, well, why did you join? Why did you become a police officer? And if you join for the right reasons and your heart's in the right place, if you leave, who does that leave on the force? Um, what if we still have some of those officers who aren't doing the right thing. Those of us who really cared and were really hurt by the community's reaction, we just had to support each other and know that, hey, I'm in this for the right reasons and I'm going to go back out into my community and I'm going to continue to build the trust, uh, reestablish relationships that have been broken. It's not always the easiest thing, but like you said, I have a son and I want him to be safe in our community. The decision I came to was I'm going to stay here and I'm going to fight the good fight and I'm going to try to lead, uh, lead and develop officers to come behind me to continue that good fight. Uh, unfortunately, I won't see the change that I want to see in my career, maybe not even in my lifetime, but if we continue to bring up strong leaders in the, in the police force that are here to do the right thing for the right reason, I think eventually the change will occur, but it didn't, this didn't happen overnight and we're not going to solve the problem overnight. Even though you're not going to solve it overnight, you are making inroads by just getting to know people. Uh, you know, you do Camp Fury. Tell us a little bit about Camp Fury before we move off that. I've seen, um, <laughs> since I'm lucky enough to be related to you and also to be friends with you on Facebook, I see all these really cool pictures of you taking young women through these adventures, yes. um, like the adventures of a first responder. Uh, tell us about Camp Fury and what that's doing for young girls in the community. It's a week-long camp. Um, this is for older girls who are in the ninth, or I'm sorry, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grades. We join them at camp on Sunday and do some kind of team building and let them kind of get to know us a little bit before we kind of dive right into things. The week is split between law enforcement and fire and EMT. So uh, some of the stuff with the with the fire department, um, they you know climb a hundred foot ladder, they rappel out of a out of a window or off the top of a, a building. They have to don all this fire gear and like put on this gas mask that can make you claustrophobic and learn how to breathe in it. They do that the first day. And then they have to go into a smoky room and try to find, you know, see if there's any victims. I mean, some of the, the, the change that we see in these young ladies from day one, some of those who are like really timid, um, not very sure of themselves, even those who come in very confident, uh, the change at the end of the week by overcoming some of those uh, fears, you know, going off the side of a building, it is so rewarding. Police are, are, um, are the firemen's heroes, right? Because firemen are everyone's heroes. So um, 
we have a little fun. We have little competitions and uh, between law enforcement and fire. So we each have some cool things that they get to go through uh, with us. They get to uh, experience uh, kind of a little car chase and how we end a car chase. They get to be in the car and, and see how that's done. Um, they get some experience on the range, not with live fire, but they talk about some gun safety and they use um, some airsoft weapons that are replicas of, of the weapons that we use. So not live rounds, but it's still the same. So they get uh, pointers and, you know, how to hold the how to hold the gun, um, how to dismantle it, how to put it back together and, and how to shoot um, at a target. And so they really enjoy that. They get to take their targets home with them and and show everybody. Sounds so awesome. This sounds <laughs> yeah, I mean, amazing. So, like I uh, wish when I was in 10th grade, I had a chance to like go repel. <laughs> me I mean, too. seriously, this is amazing. <laughs> can I come do it? I'm so old now, but can I, I'm not in 10th grade. That's okay. Absolutely. You <laughs> and can I'm be not my in guest. your kind of shape. That's but all right. <laughs> I could like, I could bring up the rear. I could try. I mean, you know, it's interesting, Marissa, because when you talked about those really dark days when you were wondering why you were staying in policing was part of it on top of being a mother to a brilliant young boy who you want to grow um, up, who you want to have grow up in a safe uh, community, but was also part of your inspiration for staying engaged in this work, the opportunity to inspire and influence so many other young people. I mean, I assume that you've got young women coming out of this program who are more interested or thoughtful about a career in law enforcement than they might have been, or as a first responder more generally, than they might have been before. Am I, am I right about that? So initially, I don't think I thought about that aspect. As I move along in my career and I see some of the things that I've done and some of the relationships I've built, yes, I mean, I, I am inspiring uh, young women um, even if they don't want to be law enforcement or fire, uh, inspiring them to be the best version of themselves and knowing that they can put they can do anything they put their mind to. Reflecting back, um, I'm glad <laughs> that I stayed because it is, I mean, it is rewarding when you see um, just the, the, the eyes light up. I had a young lady that her mother wanted to introduce her to me because she had heard about Camp Fury. She wasn't able to join this year but she was really interested in law enforcement. And so she came to my office and we talked for about an hour and a half. Um, this young lady was amazing. She was already in the martial arts. She was in uh, junior ROTC. She has very high goals for herself. I was impressed with her, but she was <laughs> impressed with me. So I mean, it was just, I, I had so much fun just kind of getting to know her. And I let her ask me any questions she wanted. Um, and she had some great thoughtful questions um, which made me know that she was really serious about, she's thinking about her future. I gave her my number. I was like, please, you know, call me anytime if you need anything. So we've communicated through email a little bit. Um, and I really hope she comes to Camp Fury next year because I think she, I think she'll knock it out of the park. And you've been involved in training um, law enforcement. You made a decision to leave that field and go back on patrol. Tell us about that decision and tell us why, why was it important for you to go back out on patrol when you did? I'll back up just a little bit because it was actually switched. I left patrol to go be the educator. Um, and then when I got promoted, I went back to patrol and left the education piece. So initially everyone starts off as a patrol officer on our department. 
I had been honing my defensive tactics skills and I had started, you know, uh, fighting with the recruits and playing an actor in some of their situational training. That was my intro into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, so I was really into training and never thought about teaching, but uh, a sergeant had me come down to the academy on special assignment because he had two uh, male instructors that were on family medical leave around the same time. So along with two academy classes, we had in-service for the whole department. So they were really, it was hard to do with one or two people. So I was down there that caused a little bit of friction because I only had three years on when I went down to do the special assignment at the academy. And normally you have to have about seven years on and, and there's a long list of educational requirements, which I actually met, but people didn't know. All they knew is that I was a three-year rookie going to teach people at the academy. So how did you um, handle the friction? How did you, <laughs> how did you take that down? Oh, so I tell you, one of the hardest things uh, is teaching your peers and to have that as my first learning experience. Once they figured out, I actually knew what I was talking about. I knew how to teach the techniques. I had to demonstrate on some folks to let them know. And they, they gave a little resistance. And when they, oh, maybe she does know what she's talking about. So, um, they had no idea that I would Maybe fight the recruits. there's like a little reel underneath the fake fight. <laughs> yes. Like there's just a little yes. extra. <laughs> yes, yes. And so uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, with guys, that's what happens. So um, eventually people kind of settled down and they learned that, oh, she does know, know what she's talking about. She does know how to do this stuff. And mind you, none of those people wanted, wanted my position. They don't want to get up there and try to teach. They can barely do the moves that we show them. So anyway, so I was down there um, getting acclimated. I don't really like to talk in front of people. So that teaching aspect was really hard for me. Uh, and, and again, I was teaching my peers. Um, but as I started to settle in, while I was down there on special assignment, one of the male instructors decided he wanted to go back out in the field on patrol. And so an opening had come up and the sergeant came and asked me, did I want to stay? So now ever since I joined the police department um, and I found out about the tactical units, the, you know, kind of SWAT, they call them SWAT out there. I said, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to, you know, don the black outfit and go. I want to be the one they call when they need to go get the bad guy. So I had been training for that. I had guys giving me, you know, heavy vest to train in. And that's how I met my ex-husband. He was training me to be, you know, a SWAT person. Um, so when, when uh, that sergeant asked me to stay, I was at a real crossroads. I'd started to love teaching and, but I also still wanted, I wanted to be that active, you know, kicking in doors and, and going to get the bad guy. So I literally made a list of, you know, pros and cons for each. And for me at the time, actually the tactical list had more pros than staying at the academy. But one of my friends just looked at me and they go, hey, there's been females on TAC. There's never been a female PTDT instructor. And I kind of thought about that. And, I, and they go, you could make your lane that way. And so I did. That, that was kind of what swayed me. And I had no idea, again, as I reflect back now, how... I paved the way because there had never been one. Um, to me, I was just like, oh, there's never been one. I'll be the first, no problem. <laughs> um, not thinking about the long-term effects of that. So I really think that catapulted me in my career. That's such a prestigious position on our department. 
while I was there, I decided to stay and my sergeant pushed me to take the sergeant's test. Um, I didn't want to, but he was like, no, you're going to take it. <laughs> and I guess he saw something in me that I didn't because I was, ha I was having fun. I'm like, I could stay here the rest of my career. So I studied and actually passed and made the sergeant. So I had to leave this job that I had come to love to go back out on patrol. But as I started to mature as an officer, I see things that I want to change. But if I stay an officer, my, my influence is going to be very, very limited. And I will always have somebody above me saying, do this, do that. But if I decide to move up in the ranks, the further up I go, the more influence I have. And I will be able to make some of those changes that I think need to be made. And I think I've really, really seen that from captain to major. It's crazy the amount of respect people give you because of your title, but it has opened up so many things for me. And I've been able to influence some things and change some things. And I just sit back and I'm like, wow, this is cool. You know, like, so I have my, it's, it, I never, I never thought about it being an officer. I never like, I never was like, oh, I want to be chief one day. It didn't really matter to me about going up in rank. I really did want to be a public servant. I really did want to go out and protect people. You know, my degrees in social work. So uh, I'm, I have a, I have a helping heart that it's just, it's just, that's just how I am. I don't know. The journey has been really, I'm sure I would have had a great career had I stayed on patrol and went to TAC, but staying at the training unit and becoming the first female, it has really, it, it has followed me in a gray. So now I think we're on our third female uh, instructor. It's really, really good to see. And people don't fight it like they did when, when I went down. What do you want civilians to know about the work of law enforcement today in this crazy environment that we're in? I want people to know that there are way more good cops than there are bad cops. And what I mean by that is I think most of us join law enforcement knowing it's not, it's not a glamorous job. We see some of the worst things on a daily basis. We deal with people at their lowest point. And those are most of our calls. Very rarely um, do we get called to, <laughs> to someone's house and just say, hey, we've cooked you dinner. Come sit there. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's not, it's not we usually see people uh, on a not so good day for someone to come into this career. At least initially, I believe they come in for the right reasons. We have hundreds of thousands of contacts with people every day and you will never hear about it because they went well. The ones you hear about are those that don't go well. And not, not saying that we shouldn't. Uh, we learn a lot from those situations. But my point is, most people get into this profession for the right reason. They want to go out there. They want to help people. They want to make the community a safer place for them and their families. Because like you said, we're a part of the community. We live here. Um, my, my son is growing up here. I just say... Uh, have an open mind um, when you come into contact with law enforcement because most of us are here for the right reason. Well, everybody else may not be making you dinner, but I will make you dinner, Major Marissa Barnes. <laughs> I will always make you take dinner care of me. <laughs> anytime. You bring yourself back out to LA. Um, okay. Major Barnes, uh, on a serious note, thank you for being here and then just sharing a bit about what your days are like now and what 
uh, some of the things that you and your colleagues have to contend with in the current environment. But mostly, you know, thank you for your commitment and your intentions and your decision to make your platform and the space in which you exist uh, a way to make things better for other people. So thank you for that, cousin. You're the best. Thank you. Love you.